and Denny Bagley has been working on it. People turn around and ask me to do something about it. Like I have any idea about an HVAC system. What? Any, anyway, um, so this is why I don't know how the sermon's going to go. Because many of you know my brother and I don't have much of a relationship. We don't speak. We try to pretend like we don't know each other outside of the building. The last time I heard from him was July when he texted me and asked me where his birthday present was. But this week I got a, um, a text from him that just said, you Okay. And I responded, and I said, I think so. And he responded, and this is what I got. Well, this morning I had a dream that you gave the most bizarre, unintelligible, embarrassing sermon imaginable, so I thought I'd better check on you. Oh, no, it keeps going. This thing had no connection to anything spiritual that I can recall, but as I said, most of it was incoherent, so who really knows? As you might imagine, I was highly uncomfortable and was trying to get you to stop, but you just kept plowing ahead, unaware of the level of tension and complete bafflement overwhelming the congregation. Then, at one point, as you wandered around saying random things, you started the same sentence several times and then just wandered off out of the auditorium without finishing the sentence. The sermon was so bad that when Dad closed the service in prayer, even he couldn't pull out any nuggets of application to salvage it. Have a good day. So, like, I don't think you people realize what I have grown up with and the walking miracle that I am. So anyway, I don't know how the sermon's going to go, but let's start off with this. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to flip to a familiar passage of Scripture. Welcome back, Kyle. Uh, it's in Luke chapter 2. I know that many of you read this every Christmas Eve, but we're going to read it again. Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to pick it up with verse 8. We all there? Luke 2? Yeah. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. I don't want to ask, by the way, how many of you are familiar with this passage? Not because you have a great practice of reading this to your children and grandchildren, every, but because you watch the Peanuts cartoon every Christmas time and Linus recounts the Christmas story for you. Sinners. All right, here we go. Back to this. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. All right, so we've heard this a number of times. I did, um, many of you know that like uh, my style of music is like the classic rock era, um, like Q95, those stations that play classic rock songs. I grew up with that. I listened to that, whether it's Boston or Brian Adams or um, uh, ACDC, and, uh, maybe that's not appropriate to say, but I'm just telling you that was the kind of music that I've always listened to. And I've always wondered what those guys and, and girls, like Hart, they were good, and that was girls, anyway, um, what they think about their biggest hits. Like, 
we all love them. Like the songs that we all know, that everybody requests, like Hotel California or Bohemian Rhapsody, all of those songs that you hear and you love to hear and everybody knows. What about the people that wrote them and are asked to perform them all the time? So I looked this up. And some of the things that these people say about the songs that we all love, it cracks me up. I know some of you aren't into this kind of music, so you're not going to be familiar, but you can still take the point away. Nirvana was a band that kind of took off and ruined the best era of music, which was like the 80s hair bands. And then Nirvana comes along, and they've got the garage band sound. They had a hit song called Smells Like Teen Spirit. I don't know if you're being... And that's what it sounds like, all right? Kurt Cobain, I'll perform all of these this morning. Kurt Cobain, who wrote this song uh, before his death, obviously, said this, quote, I can barely get through teen spirit. I literally want to throw my guitar down and walk away. That's what he thought about the song that made them stars. Led Zeppelin, their big hit, anyone? Yeah, Stairway to Heaven, look at you guys, that's great. I'm not the only sinner. All right, here we go. Led Zeppelin, Stairway to Heaven. Robert Plant said this, oh, I didn't sing it. She's climbing the stairs. Okay, this is, I'd break out in hives if I had to sing that song in every show. He hated it. Uh, Warrant, which was a big 80s hair band, the leather and the long hair. They had a song, Cherry Pie. She's much. Okay, that's not appropriate to sing in church. Singer Janie Lane denounced this song. Here's what he said. I could shoot myself in the head for writing that song. And then Oasis. I don't know the band Oasis. I think it's a, like a, a band from across the ocean. Um, this is Liam Gallagher, who was their lead singer, their front man. Uh, their song, Wonderwall. I'll have to edit this. I can't blanking stand that blanking song. Every time I have to sing it, I want to gag. I go to America and they're like, are you Mr. Wonderwall? And I want to cap somebody, which I don't think is a good thing. But anyway, so this is what all of these rockers think about their most glorious songs. The songs that we love to hear them play and sing, they hate them. They don't want anything to do with them. And why? Because everywhere they go, that's what they're expected to do. John Bon Jovi has said, if I hear living on a prayer one more time, it's going to drive me from my faith. That is where we are with a lot of these rockers. They can't stand their most popular songs. You know what I notice teaching school? After 9-11, a bunch of states passed laws that kids were going to say the Pledge of Allegiance every morning to reinstitute patriotism. And there for the first several months after 9-11, that went over great. And people were proud. You know what I see now? You know what I see now. Stand up. Nobody thinks about it. They may put their hand across their heart, but that's a lot. That's a big ask for 7.45 in the morning to get your hand up to your heart. And they say the words, but they don't mean them. They don't even know what they're saying. And I would say that's probably true for most of us. And we don't say the Pledge of Allegiance, many of you, every day. But what is this? Why does that happen? That's the phrase that you've probably heard before. Familiarity breeds contempt. The more you're familiar with something, go back to those rockers you hear the same song and are asked to sing the same song over and over and over, it gets to the point where you literally hate that something because it's all around you. Now, I wouldn't say that the kids at school hate the Pledge of Allegiance, but what it does, if it's not contempt, it at least leads to indifference and boredom. Man, that's one of the things that they always tell you and marriage counselors say you have to guard against in your marriage. Because familiarity with your spouse can breed indifference and boredom. And so it's a, um, one of the things, as a New Testament church, we do what it says in the New Testament. We follow their, their example. So we take communion every week. The churches that don't take communion, their reasoning is what? Well, we don't want it to become dry and boring. 
right? And we say, well, that's our issue, and we need to make sure that our hearts are in the right place. We're going to do what we're supposed to do, but we do need to guard against boredom and indifference. You see, that is my concern about this, that it's an issue this time of year. I really do feel this way, and I know the expectation that is on me. The expectation that is on me is that every Christmas season and every Easter season that I preach from the same text and I preach the same kind of sermons, but my concern with that is this very reality, that you all know these things. And think of the people that only come to church one or two Sundays out of the year. They hear the same text and they hear the same message Every A few years ago, I was doing a series, and it just so happened that Easter Sunday fell when the text was the fall of man, Genesis 3. And the truth is that that is a perfect passage to discuss on Easter Sunday. It fits in perfectly. But the fact that my text was Genesis 3 and not the end of Matthew when Jesus resurrects from the tomb, eh, it bothered some of you. You didn't like it. Because we expect at this time of year and at Easter time of year that we focus on this text. And it's a concern to me because you've heard it all before. How do you make something new that you've heard all before? There's this going through the motions kind of feel to all of this. The songs aren't fresh and the scripture is familiar. I mean, I just read that passage. I'm not going to ask you how many of you were actually concentrating in and zeroing in. Or how many of you were thinking about Linus with his blue blanket? Or how many of you were thinking about whatever else you might have been thinking of? But the scripture is familiar. The decorations aren't new. It's the same thing every year. we got to wheel out the big tote that has all of the Christmas decorations and put this up for, for six weeks or whatever it is. It's not new. What is left to be said on this topic that we talk about year after year after year? So we hear the words, but we don't really hear them. Or maybe we hear them, but we don't really listen to what's being said. Because it's too familiar to us. And that's really too bad given, and this is what haunts me, this is the most amazing account you could ever imagine talking about. You do realize what we're talking about here, yes? That the God of eternity, the God who spoke everything into existence, he chooses to invade human history in the most unlikely form imaginable, a tiny baby on a slab of stone with a little indentation in it. I know we got the wooden, uh, the wooden uh, um, word. Ma thank you. Yikes. Yeah, we got the wooden mangers, but it's a, it's, it was probably stone. And that's what, that's what we uh, just... It's, I, how do I express that? That's the thing. That's my frustration. I don't know how to express that in a way that is overwhelming to you, that is shocking to you, that is amazing to you. I had a professor in college. His name was Dr. Keith Drury. And Dr. Drury would always talk about the miracle in the detail. And what he was saying was there is a tendency for Christians who have grown up hearing the stories of the parting of the Red Sea and these miracles that have taken place. There's a tendency for those Christians to no longer be overwhelmed by God's mighty works. And so what he said was, when that happens to you, focus on details, details surrounding those miraculous events. And sometimes that can overwhelm you. You think of it this way, people who are widely traveled, they no longer are overwhelmed necessarily by the beauty of creation. If you and I, I'm assuming you haven't done this, if you and I were to go over right now to Switzerland or to, to, to the Alps, and we would just look at the mountainside of the Alps, I think all of us would be like, holy cow. This is unbelievable, because what are we used to? We're used to cornfields, and that isn't a cornfield. That's pretty amazing. Uh, the Grand Canyon. The first time you see the Grand Canyon, your knees go weak. But imagine if you saw the Grand Canyon every day as you drove to work. 
After a while, it would lose its wonder. And so what Keith Drury was always saying was, look for what would ordinarily be insignificant details and notice the miracle in the detail and, and don't look so much at the big picture. I'll give you one example and then I'll get on with the point. But I think maybe this will illustrate it to you. Um, we got a lot of people that were around that believe all of this just happened by random chance. It just so happened that this little ball of goo rolled out of the primordial soup and it slowly started evolving and it had billions and billions of years and it kind of all pieced itself together and then started replicating. There's a lot of people that believe that. As crazy as it seems, there's a lot of people that believe that. And you say, well, look at the magnificence of man and all that he does. How can you not be amazed at the creator? But we see men every day. And so it doesn't amaze us. All right. Harvard University, this has been called the single greatest animation of what happens in a human cell every second that has ever been made. It goes about three minutes, so I crammed the video together. That's why the music's going to sound like, like that, okay? But I crammed it together into 42 seconds. Right now, your body is made, all you are is a gigantic sack of cells. All right, that's really awesome, isn't it? That's what you are. But right now, while you're sitting there and you're listening in all of this, billions of cells in your body, this is happening. We don't know it, but this is happening. I want you to look at the miracle in the detail. Look at this. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. How amazing is God? How amazing is the creator that put together that magnificent machine? Billions of those things are happening right now in each one of you. That little dude that carries the giant sack on his back and he's walking like that. What is that thing? Kind of freaks me out. That's happened on my skin right now. But that's what's going on in your body. That's what I'm saying. How do you come away from that not falling on your face in awe of the incredible designer that put us together? I just, I cannot fathom how someone would look at that and say... And we got really lucky that that all pieced itself. No, it's not possible. And I know you're not laughing at people, but you're laughing at the preposterous nature of something so incredible, something so intricately designed just happening. It doesn't work like that. And you know that. So that's what I want to do. I want to take that advice. It's my best attempt to make this incredible story mean something to you. After years and years and years of hearing the same thing, I want to take the advice and I want to go small. I want to look at that passage that we just read and zero in on this verse, Luke 2, verse 12. This, will, this is what the angels are saying to the shepherds. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Okay, I don't know if you've ever paused to consider that verse and how weird it is in context. What is the context? Well, back up one verse before it and what has happened. In chapter 2, verse 11, the angels have appeared to all of these shepherds on the hills. 
And the shepherds have heard this incredible news that the long-awaited Messiah has come. So imagine you're out there in the fields, you're tending your sheep and all of that, and it's cold and you're annoyed, and all of a sudden, this is how this happens. The sky rips open and this angel appears before you. Okay, And the first thing you're going to do is look around to see, am I on some kind of acid trip? Because I'm seeing something here, but everybody else is seeing it too. And this angel, this miraculous supernatural event, you are terrified by it, as we all would be. And the angels, the first thing he says is what? Don't be afraid. Okay, so we know that they were terrified. This angel appears before them. And then not long after that, a thousand of the heavenly hosts. So a full course fills the sky of angels. And what is this angel proclaiming? The angel is saying, your Messiah, the one you have been waiting for for thousands of years. You've gone to synagogue and you've heard the prophecies. All of the stuff that those ancient prophets that are only names to you and scrolls to you. What they told you was going to happen, it's happening now. Right now, that's occurring. That's what the shepherds are hearing. And, by the way, it has to be true. If you're one of the shepherds, it has to be Look at the sky. This is what you would expect, is it not? When God announces his arrival for the sky to rip open and him to make this announcement. So these shepherds are convinced this is happening. And they're imagining the glory. They're told in the city of David. They know that's Bethlehem. They know it's not far away. And so they're naturally curious. Well, how am I going to know when I see him? What are they going to naturally assume? Verse 12. This will be a sign to you. Okay, that Greek word for sign has been used before. Whenever God gives a sign that he's involving himself in humanity's affairs, where is that word used? Well, in the Old Testament, it's used for when he rips open the Red Sea. That's a sign for you that God's at work. Jesus, when he walks on water, that will be a sign that he is the long-awaited one. When he raises the dead, or Elijah or Elisha in the Old Testament, when they raise people from the dead, why did they say they were doing it? It is a sign that God is giving me this message to share with you, right? Okay, that's what these shepherds are used to. This will be a sign to you. So what are you going to expect if you are a shepherd? When God intervenes in human history, the signs are pretty great. They're pretty spectacular. The Red Sea just opening up and men walking across on dry ground. The sign has got to be incredible. But verse 12 doesn't fit with that at all. This will be a sign to you. What do you expect to hear? If I'm one of those shepherds, this is what I expect to hear. And this will be a sign to you, shepherds. The moon will turn to blood and the stars of the heavens will all fall from the sky at his feet. That's what I would expect when God comes to earth. That's what I'm expecting to see. That would be a sign to me. And instead, what do they say? This will be a sign to you that you're going to find a little baby, vulnerable, born to a peasant woman, laying on a stone slab with a little indentation that, that cows drink out of. What? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. That's not at all what you would expect. So why the manger? Why would he do it this way? To me, that's the fascinating part of all of this. It's the detail that I think can bring to us a meaning that maybe we've missed before. Maybe the oddity of God coming in a manger is the point that we should be focusing on. I need a volunteer, somebody that's not ashamed to speak in front of the congregation. Does somebody, no, Obi, absolutely not. No, no child. I need an adult who's not afraid. Okay, Mary Price, no, you're a Clemson fan. I don't call on those. Okay. 
Mary Price, you just stay there. You're, you're fine right there. Okay, I want you to imagine, Mary, that you are in Washington, D.C., okay? And you're just walking the streets, you're looking at the sights, and somebody who is clearly not from here comes up to you and says, I want to see the president. I want to know where the president is. How will I know when I found the president? What would, do not be a smart aleck, please. This is not, I don't want this to turn into a political thing at all. But if you were going to, this is why I was very careful who I called on to answer this question, okay? If somebody wanted to know, how will I know when I found the president, what do you tell them? Okay, so I'm going to go to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue to a White House, but there's a lot of people there. How will I know that this is the president? I'm not going to see him, but if I did, what would I look for? What is a sign that this must be the guy? Okay, so he's going to have the little guys with the things in their ears and the sunglasses on. They'll be heavily armed. Anything else? Be wearing a suit. Okay, you get the point. There is a way that you would describe, this is how you know that you, you've seen the president, right? The, the answers that you're going to give, you're going to look for the pump, you're going to look for the ceremony. You're looking for the guy that everywhere he goes, he's got a little band that follows him around and plays his theme song. That bum, 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 That's what you're looking for because most dudes don't have a band that follows them around. I've tried for years. I think it would be awesome wherever I went to have a band. But that's what you're looking for if you're looking for the president of the United States. And what did God choose to signify his coming into the world? Here's what I would think. I would think if the president gets all of that pomp and the band and everything else, I would think that God's going to have a billion times what that is, that that's going to be the sign. Something unbelievable is going to take place. No, look for a baby in strips of cloth, just like a million other babies in strips of cloth. That's what you're going to find there. Maybe that's what Paul meant when he wrote to Timothy and said, Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. That he appeared in the flesh. That God, the God of the universe that spoke everything into existence, that he took on the form of our flesh. That's what makes that song, Mary, Did You Know? And what, it's what sets it apart. We sing all these other Christmas songs, and maybe you're tired of that song because of familiarity, whatever. But if that song has ever moved you, why has it moved you? Because at that point right there, that, that line that says, it always gets me, and I've heard it a million times, that when Mary kisses the face of her baby boy, which every mom does, she is literally kissing the face of God Almighty. That's unbelievable. That's the mystery that I'm talking about, and yet the world misses it. They don't see it, and why? Because they're looking for the president. That's what they're looking for. They're looking for the pomp and the parades and the publicity. That's what God would bring with him. They're looking for something spectacular, right? A conquering Messiah that's going to come and defeat the Romans. And he's going to take over Caesar's throne. And he's going to bring all men to their knees and exalt the Jewish people, God's people. That's what they're waiting for. It's what they're looking for. They did not see the divine in the ordinary. I think that's the, by the way, I want you to hold on to that right there, because where we're going to start the year, I don't know if you're aware of this, but around Greentown, Indiana, there's a lot of this, right? A lot of us think of ourselves that way, and as a consequence, I think we sometimes miss the divine in the ordinary lives that we live. You, I cannot wait for this series. you got to come back in January, okay? That's all I'm going to say, but you just, you've got to come back. All right, now, none of this made sense to the shepherds. None of it made sense to them whatsoever. It didn't make sense to the rest of the world. This isn't how you save the world. 
That's not what we were anticipating. It's not what we were expecting at all. Yes, look at what Romans says. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths uh, beyond tracing out. Quit trying to figure out the mind of God. You don't have the mind of God. Nothing he does will probably make sense to you because you can't trace his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Don't try to figure it out, but know that you can trust him. And consider this additional detail. Who is he speaking to? Who did he send the angels to? These aren't just shepherds. These are winter shepherds. And there is a difference. We're talking the poorest of the poor. Listen to this. The sheep ranchers, the ones who own the sheep... They would feed their sheep a little hay, maybe a bit of grain during the day. They'd move them about on dried up pasture and then they would go home to eat supper with their families. At nighttime in winter in the pasture in the cold, there was little to do. So men without little worth were hired to build a campfire, perhaps sing a song to help keep the sheep quiet and keep the wild animals at bay. The hired hands were called shepherds, but at night in winter, their only job was to bed down the sheep maybe in a cave, often around a fire, and then go to sleep, leaving one fellow awake to watch. The owners of the sheep, they were at home, asleep, along with their wives and children. This is the poorest of the poor that you could ever imagine. How poor? Again, a little history. These winter shepherds owned nothing. They owned nothing. They could not get day work. That's why they were hired to work at night. They had no family, most likely. They were kind of ostracized, maybe what we would call homeless, they weren't even allowed to testify in their courts of law because their testimony wouldn't be seen as reliable. Most shepherds were that way, but definitely winter shepherds. Who are these people to put a finer point on it? These people. This is what you would expect to see. Maybe war veterans who were amputees, people who were missing limbs. They can't get normal work, so they could be a winter shepherd. People who uh, were nearly blind in old age. They didn't really have much worth left, but they had to do something, so they would be hired as a winter shepherd. But mentally handicapped. If they had survived, that's a job that they would get. When God comes to earth, those are the people he announces it to first. What is that saying to you? What is that saying to me about what God values, where God places value? That's who he's talking to. I've got to tell you, I think the angels were probably surprised. I really do believe this. I started thinking about it this week as I was preparing this message. The angels have been waiting for this moment. And God looks at Jesus and says, it's go time. And Jesus stands up. I believe those were his exact words. And so Jesus stands up, folds himself into humanity, takes on the form of a tiny infant baby. And God then looks to the angels and says, you go and let them know. So who do you think the angels, they've been preparing this song for a long time. I mean, for eons, they got this song worked out, and the sopranos have their part, and the altos are ready, and God says, go and let them know. Where do you think they think they're going? I would imagine we're going to the halls of power, baby. We're going to knock the socks off of the Romans. Just wait until we see their faces, and Caesar, he's going to turn ghostly white, and then God says, no, 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 over there. That's where I want you to go. I'm sorry, What? We're going to proclaim your coming to who? The people no one's going to believe anyway? The people that barely have sight anyway? The, the dregs of society? That's where we've been working on this song for thousands of years. And that's who's going to hear it? I mean, imagine preparing a concert and you've worked really hard. I once spoke, the first time I ever spoke was at a family conference at Macedonia Christian Church. I worked so hard on that message. I was so excited. I was in college at the time. I showed up to the big family conference, three people in the audience, and two of them were my grandparents. 
and Granny left halfway through the message. Anyway, that's a little bit, that's a little disappointing when you have something built up like that, and that's where they go. King Herod, he's asleep. Don't you think the angels wanted to proclaim to King Herod, you ain't the king, buddy? No, he's asleep. And Caesar and, and the Roman generals, they're all sleeping. And the movers and the shakers, the merchants and the lawyers and the priests, they're all sound asleep as well. The sophisticated wise men are still two years away. And the angels are sent to proclaim this to the dregs of society. Is this not perfectly representative of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That it is not for the proud. And it is not for the self-important it is not for those who think so highly of themselves. Jesus said it himself, that the last will be first, and the first will be last. Those who value themselves above all others, they will be last in line. And those that we look down upon so often, they will be the ones that God exalts first. And how did these lowly shepherds, how did they respond to this news? Did you see it? Verses 15 and 16. Look at verses 15 and 16, what they do. The moment they get the news, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. They knew it had happened, which the Lord has told us about. They knew that the angels had come from the Lord. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. They eagerly rushed to the manger because they believed. And I'm telling you, at this time of year, every year, God is calling us to behold this miracle are we rushing to it with the same eagerness that those shepherds did? Or has it become familiar to us and we've lost our sense of awe and wonder? God has a special heart for the humble. You see it all over scripture. It's people who are not held back by popularity. I don't know what people will think of me if I proclaim my belief in all of this. It's people not held back by wealth and prestige. Think of those shepherds. Nobody thought anything of them anyway. They had nothing to hide, nothing. There's no care in the world other than proclaiming the greatness of what they saw. Is that us? Or are we worried about our reputation? Are we worried about the circles that we run in or that we want to run in and we're afraid of how we'll be, look, we'll be looked at as foolish? Remember what King David said when he dances before the Lord and his wife mocks him? Geez, that was embarrassing. David says, I'll become even more undignified than this. We're talking about God and I'm going to celebrate him. He is my focus. None else is that us because God has a special heart for those people go to Luke 14 just flip over a few pages and look at what it says in Luke chapter 14 Luke 14 verses 13 and 14 this is Jesus giving a lesson and what does he say I'll actually back up to verse 12 then Jesus said to his host when you give a luncheon or a dinner do not invite your friends your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors if you do they'll invite you back and you'll be repaid when you give a banquet, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. God has a special place reserved for the humble. What does Paul write in 1 Corinthians? You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. 1 Corinthians 1.27. But God shows the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God shows the weak things of the world to shame the strong. I picture every time I read that verse, all of the college professors that know so much about everything and have all the explanations in the world for how what you just saw in that video earlier, well, this is how it happened. You have to have a few billion years and you have the right uh, chemical. All these people that have all the advanced degrees and they know so much. And then I look at some poor person who barely has a high school education of that, who bows humbly before the throne of the Almighty, 
Which one is being exalted in heaven for eternity? It's the exact opposite of everything that man believes. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. This entire event of his coming is painted in humility. Prideful Herod, a few weeks ago we talked about him. Mr. Pride right there. He had everything, all the power. And God brings him low through disease and paranoia and pain. The wise men, these were sophisticated scholars from the east. Why did they get honored in scripture? Because they were sophisticated and everybody was impressed by them? No. Were they honored in scripture with a place to be remembered for all time? Because they were wise people and knew a lot of stuff? No. The only reason Matthew records them for posterity is because these wise people bowed before the child of a peasant girl. That's why. God has a special place in his heart for the humble, the poorest, and the dirtiest dregs in society. That is who God thought, I want them to know that I've come. Those are the people I want to announce it to first. The last, in society's eyes, will be first. And the most obvious example of the, of the humility of this event, look in that manger where you've got a baby laying there on a stone slab. Interesting because at the end of his earthly life, he'll be laid on a different stone slab. But he won't stay there. But that baby that's laying there, look at that baby. That, that sign that is for us to see. Look in the manger and see. That is the God of eternity who spoke everything into existence, making himself as lowly and as vulnerable as each one of us. And you read there in chapter 2, verse 11, the angel says, this is Christ, the Lord. I want to make it very clear what's being said here. This child isn't just sent by the Lord, right? This isn't just the Messiah sent by the Lord. The angels are saying, that baby that you are looking at in the manger, that lowly, humble baby, vulnerable to all of the forces of the outside, not just sent by the Lord, that child is the Lord, the one through whom all things have been made. That is the mystery. That is the miracle. And that is the single greatest story and account that has ever been told. Take a look at this. Four hundred years had passed since the prophets had fallen silent. Their voices of wisdom and challenge, but distant echoes in the annals of time. As if the universe itself was holding its breath, waiting. The world lay lost in darkness, held in the grip of the Roman Empire's power. Yet, in this prolonged silence, against this canvas of despair and anticipation, destiny was quietly weaving a tale. Something small, something seemingly insignificant is happening in a little town called Bethlehem. Not a capital, not a hub of commerce or power, but a tiny whisper of a town. Here, amidst the overlooked and ordinary, a child is born. But this is not just any child. This is the universe exhaling, releasing that held breath in the form of boundless hope and promise. This child is the antithesis to empire, to domination and oppression. 
he's a new kind of story. A story of love. Of a kingdom built not on might, but on selflessness. His path wasn't one of palaces or grand courts, but of dusty roads, stormy seas, and intimate dinners with the most unexpected of guests. He taught on hillsides and in quiet corners. He sought out the lost, healed the sick, and elevated the outcast. In a world dominated by power, he washed the feet of his disciples. The servant king, lamb of the living God, father, son, savior to all the world, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. And the thing is, in the midst of this immense, mighty Roman narrative, it's this humble story that endures, that changes everything. It's a cosmic reminder that love, hope, and grace, they have a way of lighting up the darkest corners. And they start small, always. So in our world, with its own empires and powers, darkness and silences, may we remember Bethlehem and that humble stable. May we remember that God's work often starts in the quiet, in the unexpected and overlooked. And maybe, just maybe, that's where we should be looking. I don't know how to possibly make a story that you've heard a hundred times more meaningful other than simply saying that so many of us, and myself included, get so caught up in trying to make something of myself and be something that the world will look at and be amazed at and, oh, what an impact. I don't need to make that impact. The impact has already been made, and my job is to point all men to him. If you need to make that decision this morning, if you need to turn your life over to the only one that matters, then please don't wait. Please don't delay. Don't think it over anymore. Come to Christ. Give your life to him. And start making him famous. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this story. And I pray that in some way, at least to someone here, they have seen the miracle and the mystery of you becoming that innocent, vulnerable baby. Father, I pray that in this season of so many distractions and in this world where so many of us try so hard to be something ourselves, that we would come to understand this morning, if we can, that only in you will we find fulfillment and purpose and meaning. And we thank you for coming and bringing that to us. Father God, I pray for every individual heart and soul that is here. I don't know what they're dealing with. I don't know what they're going through. But you do. And you are the Prince of Peace. Make yourself known in a powerful and a real way. And we'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. If you have a decision to make, now's the time to make it. Would you come as we stand and as we sing? Thank mm -hmm. you.